Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Princeton University Press Ideas Podcast, a joint production of Princeton University Press and the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, and today I'm speaking with David Edmonds, author of the book Parfit, A Philosopher and His Mission to Save Morality. David, welcome to the New Books Network. Very pleased to be here. We're pleased to have you on our show. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Gosh, well, um, I have had a portfolio existence, I guess. So I've been a part-time journalist and a part-time philosopher. I've spent many decades at the BBC, which I gave up a couple of years ago. And my academic background is in philosophy. So I have a fellowship at the Uhero Centre in Oxford University, which is a centre devoted to practical ethics. So that's my background, part journalist, part philosopher. What led you to undertake a biography of uh, Derek Parfit? Well, there's a very boring, prosaic answer to that, and a slightly <laughs> more interesting one. The, the boring answer is that I decided to give up my BBC job, and I needed something to do. Uh, so that's... That's I I'd sort of promised myself I wasn't going to write any more books, uh, but then I thought I'm going to have time on my hands, so uh, I'll give the Parfit biography a go. Um, I, in the back of my mind, I'd always had this idea that he deserved a biography and that he would be very interesting to write about, and that I was almost uniquely qualified to write about him because he was my BPhil supervisor when I was an Oxford postgraduate. And then later on, I did a PhD, and Janet Radcliffe Richards was my PhD supervisor, and Janet became Derek's wife. So I'm the only person in the world, it's a strange claim to fame, who was <laughs> taught by both Derek and by Janet. It's, it's a fascinating book, and I'm thinking not just in terms of your qualifications for it, but the timing as well, because it's clear from it that you had an opportunity to speak with so many people who knew him over the course of his life, and it produces so many interesting insights and stories that help us to better understand not just uh, Parfit himself, but uh, the perspective that informed his ideas. Yeah, so it's partly about... Obviously, Derek is the central character, but it's also about Oxford philosophy. It's also about this strange institution, All Souls, that he was based at for four decades or more of his life. I think the part of the story that will be least familiar to many philosophers, at least, will be the first few chapters which cover Derek's early life, because he was notoriously sort of eccentric in later life. And the puzzle really for me became to explain how it was that the early Parfit transmogrified into the later Parfit because he seemed such a different boy and young man to the obsessive monomaniac philosopher he becomes later when he does almost nothing but philosophy. It's especially surprising considering not just the, the, the early life you describe, but the early, the, the academic background. But before we get to that, I, I want to discuss a, a bit about his early life. Could you tell us a bit about, uh, you know, Derek's uh, family and, 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 and how growing up with that family uh, uh, shaped and, and directed him towards his career? Well, his mum, his dad, 
and all four of his grandparents were missionaries. And he was born in China, where both his mum and his dad were based as doctors, as missionary doctors. He then arrives in England via America and sort of arrives in the UK shortly after World War II is over. Uh, eventually, they move to Oxford. In Oxford, he attends a posh private school, private school, or something we call it public school in the UK as well, a school you pay for. And from there, he goes on to the most famous private public school in the UK, which is Eton. He's the top scholar there. They're known as King Scholars. And from Eton, he goes on to Oxford as an undergraduate, but not in PPE, the, the degree that many philosophers have studied, politics, philosophy and economics. Rather, he starts off as an historian. So how does his background shape him? Well, I mean, I think he does come to philosophy with a kind of missionary zeal. And I think that's not unrelated to the fact that he comes from this missionary background. Uh, and he's, he's, his family is not wealthy. He gets, as I say, he gets this King's scholarship, so they don't have to pay for his, for his tuition when he goes to Eton. And they struggle at home, but he's clearly a sort of middle class, upper middle class boy. And, um, you know, he, he, from a fairly privileged background, but there's no indication when he first goes to Oxford that he's going to become a philosopher. He's obviously interested a little bit in philosophy, but he's the star history student of the year. The, the history tutors are in awe of how brilliant a historian he is. And he doesn't actually move on to philosophy until after he's finished his undergraduate degree. The uh, academic path you described is very much of a gilded one, too. It seems that he, it was you describe it's basically triumph after triumph, and 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 you make him out less to be not not just a, a star history student, but basically a, a star at, at at everything he did. And yet, as you explained, it, it's not it wasn't uh, a a, uh, a a you know a success that led him to become exceptionally pretentious or. Uh, uh, or arrogant in in many ways, and how he remained uh, in, in some respects, you know, very well liked, uh, you know, you know, in spite of, shall we say, his uh, academic and intellectual brilliance. Yeah, he was a very nice man. He was a decent man. He was a benign man. There were aspects of his character which maybe we'll get onto later that were utterly selfish. I mean, in some ways, he he behaves like a monster in the fact that uh, he is so obsessed with his work that he won't do things like, you know, attend his friend's weddings and so on, because his work is more important. But having said that, people didn't dislike him. He was very odd in having almost no malign thoughts about anybody, almost no malevolent thoughts. He didn't suffer from jealousy. He wasn't status driven. Um, so, yes, he was he was well loved. He was a sort of oddball. Um, he became odder, but he, there, there was something odd about him sort of even early on. But, yeah, he was popular despite his great success. And as you mentioned, it was gilded. He, he spent his life literally in a cloistered environment. So the prep school and then Eton, which is a kind of 15th century institution, then Oxford, then 
All Souls, which is another 15th century institution. He was surrounded by the same type of architecture all his life. It was literally cloistered life. But because Derek was Derek, it was not a dull life. And the book is full of, you know, extraordinary anecdotes about him because, <laughs> yeah, because because he behaved in 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 a very particular particular way. So I, I I was worried when I first started out that there that it wasn't rich material necessarily because you know he doesn't go to war. There are no sort of major battles. There's no blood. There's no murder. But. Derek being Derek, there was no shortage of stories. And that's really what brings the book, I hope, to life. Let's talk a bit about his turn toward philosophy and his uh, pursuit of it as a uh, intellectual uh, profession. What drew him into philosophy and and, and uh, what uh, areas of philosophy in particular uh, engaged him? Well, he received something called a Harkness Fellowship, which is a kind of reverse road scholarships for mainly nowadays for British students. In the past, it, 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 it cast its net a little bit wider. And he goes off to America for two years and he's at Columbia and then later at Harvard. And it's there he takes his first philosophy classes. And He's interested in two areas, really. One is moral philosophy, because he takes some classes in ethics. And he becomes interested very early on in utilitarianism, the idea that what we should do is try and maximize happiness or maximize well-being. And then by chance, he goes on a long road trip with somebody who's already a philosopher called David Wiggins. So as part of your Harkness Fellowship, they want you to get to know America. So I became a Harkness Fellow. And when I was a Harkness Fellow, they gave each of us a season ticket to fly around the United States free of charge for 60 days. So we could go anywhere we wanted for 60 days. When Derek was a Harkness Fellowship Fellow, they gave him the money to buy a car. All the fellows were, were instructed to buy a car and then to travel around America. And by chance, he ends up traveling with a guy called David Wiggins, who is still alive and becomes a you know, huge figure himself in philosophy. And David Wiggins is particularly interested in what's called personal identity, what it is that makes one person the same person over time, what it is that makes the baby Derek Parfit the same as the history, history undergraduate Derek Parfit, the same as the Harkness Fellow Derek Parfit, the same as the All Souls fellow Derek Parfit, the same as the author of Reasons and Persons, what it is that makes that person the same person over time. And Wiggins was an expert in that subject. And I'm sure during the course of that journey, they would have discussed personal identity. And that is the subject that Parfit becomes famous for. That's the subject of his first paper, which he publishes in 1971, which immediately brings him an international reputation. So it's it's those two areas, which are really areas that he is interested in for the rest of his life, moral philosophy, personal identity, that he is already hooked into in his American years between 1965 and 1966. So he goes to All Souls, and as you've already mentioned, he spends his entire career there. 
And yet you wouldn't know that from the narrative because he always seems on the cusp. It's, it always seems to be he, he seems to be getting reprieves and, 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 and you know, uh, having, uh, you know, terms. It, it, it's it, it's in, in some ways it, it points to how what, you know, many people view as a cloistered existence can be in its own way a, a very perilous one. I was wondering if you could talk a bit about his time at All Souls and, and the difficulty he had in in, in in securing his footing there because it, I, I was reading when I was reading those chapters I was thinking about how it spoke to uh y- how you illuminated so much about his process of 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 thinking as a philosopher and, and the challenges that he faced in terms of turning that into something that would really preserve his career and, and his presence at all souls so he's elected what's called a prize fellow at All Souls in 1967. And that's a very prestigious fellowship to have. And it gives you seven years basically to work on what the hell you like. And then in 1974, he receives another fellowship, a junior research fellowship, also at All Souls, that takes him up until 1981. So he's now been there for 14 years. And In those days, the next step was to be elected a senior research fellow at All Souls. And if you get that, you've got a job for life, except it's not really a job because you you don't have to do any teaching. There there are no sort of commitments. It's basically a research institution and you're basically safe for life if you get a senior research fellowship. So Derek just assumed, because life, I think, had always come so easily to him, that in 1981, when he was up for this senior research fellowship, it would automatically follow and he would be awarded it. But there was one problem, which is that he'd been to All Souls for 14 years and hadn't produced a single book. And he'd alienated a few of the other fellows at All Souls, partly because there'd been a big fight about whether they should let women into All Souls. And there it was on the side of the angels. He was pushing for All Souls to be a bit more progressive and to allow women in. That had alienated some of the more reactionary All Souls fellows. There'd been other things that they uh, were annoyed by. Um, And a a couple of them sort of saw this as an opportunity to take their revenge. And they asked the question, well, why should we award Parfit a senior research fellowship, This basically this job for life? given that he's been here 14 years and hasn't written a single book. And so there's lots of politics going on. In the end, a compromise is reached and they say to him, we're not going to give you a senior research fellowship, but we'll give you another three years at um, All Souls. We'll extend your junior research fellowship. And if you haven't produced a book by the end of that period, effectively, we're chucking you out. And it was a terrible, terrible time in Parfit's life, very, very stressful for him. He'd never really had a, a, a sort of a failure like this before, and he took it quite badly. But in a way, it was the best thing that ever happened to him because he had to knuckle down. And the book that he's most famous for, Reasons and Persons, which appears in 1984, probably would never have appeared, almost certainly would never have appeared, had it not been for this threat hanging over him. And he works like crazy. He almost kills himself producing this enormous book, which is a kind of classic 
um, and I think will be read for decades to come. And he brings it out just in time. As I say, it probably never would have appeared had it not been for uh, this, the, the pressure that he was under. So looking back on his life, it, it was probably a blessing in disguise. But at the time, it was the, the, the most difficult, painful moment in his life and period in his life. I was wondering if you could perhaps uh, explain a, a bit uh, or elaborate a bit about the book itself and, and, and explain what it was he, he was doing in it and, and what made it such a, uh, a, a, a significant work in, in the field of, of moral philosophy. Well, the reason it had never appeared was that he was a perfectionist. He always thought that he could improve on almost everything that he wrote. And he'd been working on a number of different fields, and I won't go through all of them, but there, there were two kind of famous contributions he makes. One is to a topic we've already touched on, which is personal identity, what it is that makes one person the same person over time. The other has to do with a, an entire field of moral philosophy that effectively he invented which is the philosophy of future people, future generations. What do we owe to people who are not yet born? And part of it had a very straightforward thought, which is that suppose we were to leave a piece of broken glass in a wood and it was stepped on that afternoon by a young child, that would be bad news. It would graze, scratch, injure the young child. Suppose instead of that child stepping on that glass that afternoon, the piece of glass remained in the wood for 50 years or 100 years, and it was stepped on by another child, a child who was not yet born. Well, that makes no difference. It doesn't matter that that child is not yet born. It, the child will still be hurt. The child will still bleed. And there's no moral difference between hurting the child that afternoon and hurting a child who's not yet born. So that was this very simple thought. But he then devises a whole series of weird conundrums and paradoxes about future people. And nobody had thought of these before. And there's now a thriving subgenre in moral philosophy devoted to the topic of moral philosophy. But that is a subgenre that was almost single-handedly invented by Derek Parfit. It, it is fascinating to read your descriptions of his uh, ideas, because it, not just the ideas themselves, which are fascinating, or your or, or explanations, which 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 you know, ex, you know do a nice job of setting them out, but how they reflect his engagement with. Uh, the ideas of his time, how he references, for example, Star Trek and Star Wars, how he, he the the idea of him being cloistered is is true, but also at the same time, the the phrase implies that he's more disconnected from society that than than is the case, and this gets to you know some of the implications of what he does, which which you uh, you know discuss in your book, for example, his engagement with effective altruism. He's not talking about ideas. For the sake of ideas, he's talking about ideas in terms of their relevance for us in the world in which we live. Yes, well, a couple of things that the Star Trek illusion. I, I'm not sure he actually had ever seen Star Trek, but he does. <laughs> uh, or indeed, I'm not even positive he'd heard of Star Trek, but he does indeed come up with a puzzle 
that is very Star Trek-like. So he imagines that you go into a teletransporter and your body is sort of um, uh, photographed and it or and it it uh, the, a copy is made and it appears the copy appears on planet Zog or on planet Mars and he imagines that your own body in this is in one scenario your own body sort of dies on planet Earth and he asked the question well does it matter that you've died on planet Earth if you, as it were, a copy of you, an exact copy of you, with all your memories and not your personality, your inclinations, your hobbies, an exact copy of you exists on planet Mars. And his basic conclusion is it shouldn't matter. It shouldn't matter. That that, that what matters is that you've survived psychologically. So uh, that is his big thought, that identity, whatever identity is, is not what matters. What matters is psychological continuity, survival of your ideas, survival of your personality, your thoughts, maybe your relationship with friends and family. Um, I mean, the, the, the issues about personal identity have very real relevance for the real world. So if we talk about things like shame, things like guilt, um, uh, questions about whether you should be punished for let's say a crime that you can't even remember 30 years ago or for example whether you should save for the future save for the old person that you may become hopefully these are questions that are all tied up with issues about personal identity you also mentioned effective altruism not everybody will know what effective altruism is effective altruism is a movement that believes that we should do more good and do it better so that we should give more money to charity, but we should also focus on the most efficient charities so that we don't waste our charity dollars or charity pounds by giving it to charities that are ineffective. And the, maybe the father of that movement is Peter Singer, another very famous philosopher who's still alive today, but certainly the grandfather of the effective altruism movement is Derek Parfit. And one way that Derek Parfit shifts the effective altruism movement is in persuading them that they need to take not just the lives of people who exist today, the, those who are downtrodden and very needy on the other side of the world, perhaps, or maybe even in our own neighborhood, not just the lives that exist today, but also future lives that we should care about people who are not yet born and that brings them to think a lot more about issues like climate change and so on so he he operates at a very abstract level but it has a very practical his philosophy has very practical implications now we've he produces this this book in 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 uh you know 1984 uh reasons and persons and it as you noted, it, it makes uh, it's it, it you know it, it you know solidifies his reputation. It 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 uh, you know is a major entry into the field, and 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 it secures his position at All Souls. And then he it seems to be constantly you know proposing projects, involved with projects, and another you know several decades pass 
before his uh his other his second work comes out and in in that time it seems as though he is uh, uh he he his life seems to be taking uh, i mean it, it's it's richer he this is when he he meets uh his future wife janet he's uh he's he's a, a scholar of the field he's engaging with students he is spending time in america and, and i can't help but wonder if if he might have been spreading himself a little too thin i mean he's living the life he wants to live but it's it's uh in some respects it's it's holding him back from from you know producing more works that that he's constantly you know picking up new things and, and dropping old ones well in a way but i think rather the opposite so when he's a young man he plays the trumpet he plays chess he's interested in politics by the time reasons and persons comes out he's interested in basically two things one is philosophy and the other is photography so every year he goes to the same two places st petersburg and venice and he photographs the same buildings and then after a time he stops going to Venice and he stops going to St. Petersburg and he ceases being a duomaniac and he becomes a monomaniac and he's only interested in philosophy. He's indeed interested in quite a lot of philosophical questions, but really what stops him publishing is his perfectionism. And he does indeed eventually, uh, he has a partner who he marries eventually, but they have a an unorthodox relationship, let me put it that way. And uh, I'm afraid Janet would admit that she comes very much second to philosophy. So philosophy is his first love. Um, and uh, he could easily have produced more work, but he, I, he kept thinking that he could make the book better. People kept making objections to some of his arguments, which he felt he had to counter. So the work got longer and longer and longer and longer. And as you say, it was decades before uh, On What Matters comes out. It, it comes out in two very, very thick volumes. And then the third volume is published posthumously in 2017. But I don't think it's because his life is becoming richer. On the contrary, his life is becoming more and more narrow. And yeah, like a, a, a tunnel where there's the end of the tunnel, there's only a tiny little shaft of light at, at, at the end of it. Um, and, you know, in some ways, I, I think it didn't help him. You know, he, 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 did, he didn't get out at all. And he ends up having a very, very narrow perspective on life. And he carried on reading the sort of New York Times every day, but he's increasingly disengaged from the real world. Let's talk a bit about uh, that that second book on what matters. Uh, what was he arguing in, in, in that book, and 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 uh, how was it received uh, when it finally was published? He has two major arguments. So I'm about to distill um, nineteen hundred pages <laughs> in in, tw in twenty five seconds, which is quite a feat. But he has two major arguments. One is he wants to show that different traditions in moral philosophy aren't as different as they seem on the surface. So there's um, Kantianism, there's consequentialism of which utilitarianism is a part, there's contractualism, which is, uh, Tim Scanlon is the most famous figure associated with that. And 
The book, which eventually appears as On What Matters, is originally called Climbing the Mountain. And part of its metaphor is that all these different traditions in moral philosophy are climbing the mountain from different sides. And the Kantianism, the Kantians are climbing from one side, the Utilitarians and consequentialists from another side. They're climbing this mountain, and when they reach the summit, they realize they're at the top of the, they've climbed the same mountain, and there they are all together. They've just come at the summit from different directions. So that's one part of his project to show that um, all these different moral traditions are, in fact, much more closely aligned than anybody had hitherto believed. The second part, which in a way is the more urgent part for Parfit, is to demonstrate, insofar as he could, that morality was objective, that it wasn't relative, it wasn't a matter of your opinion and my opinion, that there were facts of the matter, that it was a fact that killing innocent children was morally objectionable and that whether or not you believed it was morally objectionable was irrelevant. It was morally wrong. And, and that, that there was a fact of the matter. There is a fact of the matter about, about lots of moral truths. Well, about all moral truths, actually. Um, and he believed that if he couldn't show that, that life would somehow descend into nihilism, that life would become meaningless, that his life would be meaningless and that all our, our lives would be meaningless. So it was a very personal project for him. Um, uh, uh, others thought that they could perfectly manage uh, without this particular sort of claim that morality had to be objective in the very hard sense that he, that he meant. But he felt that if he couldn't show that morality was objective, then in a way there was no point carrying on living. Oh, it's a pretty heavy project to undertake for oneself. <laughs> it's a little wonder he spent so much time and was so invested in it. Absolutely, absolutely. And, 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 and <laughs> it, was, it, was, it, was, it was a big theme, you know, there was, there, there was um, a, a worry that, um, right from the early philosophy, there was a concern about sort of death and, and, and you know, we're, we're all worried about death to varying degrees. And as we get older, we, some of us worry about it more. And the first part of his philosophy, he sort of argued that death shouldn't worry us so much because the person who will eventually die is less close to the person who currently exists than we imagine because there's no we have no essence there's no essence of of a person and we're constantly changing our cells are constantly changing our our memories are constantly changing and so on so sort of death was part of the early picture and an interest in death and then later on there was this question about the purpose of life and that was all wrapped up in this notion about morality having to be objective and that's Without that, life was meaningless. So, yeah, very big themes. Well, we appreciate the time you've taken to speak with us. But before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Yes, I think so. I am hoping to write a book about a very famous moral philosophy thought experiment. So about a dozen years ago or so, 
I wrote a book also for Princeton University Press called Would You Kill the Fat Man, which was about a famous puzzle in moral philosophy about a runaway train that was going to kill five people who were tied to the track. And the question was, if you're standing by a footbridge and there's a very heavy man on the footbridge and you can push this heavy man over the footbridge in the way of the train and kill the heavy man and save the five people, should you do it? And it's a big um, and famous puzzle in moral philosophy. And I wrote a whole book about this um, philosophical puzzle. There's another very famous puzzle in moral philosophy called The Shallow Pond. And that is about a, a, a pond that you go past and you see uh, a drowning child in this shallow pond. And you look around to see whether there's a parent or a guardian to save this sh sh uh, child who's, who's in trouble in the water. You realize there isn't. And it's up to you to save the the um, child. And before you wade into the water, you notice that you're wearing your most expensive shoes that cost you $250. And you wonder, and this is a rhetorical question, you're not supposed to genuinely wonder, <laughs> the life of the child is worth your $250. In any case, it's a thought experiment devised by Peter Singer, who we've already mentioned in this conversation. And Peter Singer makes a very controversial claim. He says that people who don't give money to those in need uh, in the third world or elsewhere um, are like the person who worries about getting their shoes, ruining their shoes um, when they're contemplating saving the child in the shallow pond. So in other words, we are no better by by failing to send lots more a lot more money than we do to stop people starving and dying from disease. We're no better from than the person who would walk past the drowning child. So it, it, there's a lot of literature attached to this thought experiment, and I'm hoping to devote an entire book to it. So that's what I'm working on next.